country uh, as an American uh, Ohio State professor, uh, I recommend the uh, I recommend it because we over the years have had the good fortune of having good Korean students here, and time has gone by. I'm afraid to say, as I look at my own hair in the mirror these days, and <clears throat> they've become important players in the South Korean establishment. In September, we did a conference, Mershan, in the Korean National Defense University, which uh, by the end of the evening, all we were hearing was the rumors about the Ohio State Mafia having put this thing on uh, because one speaker after another of these uh, foreign policy leaders in Seoul were from Ohio State. And um, they let a few people from Northwestern and the like crowd into the agenda, but for the most part, they held it pretty tight to the OSU PhDs at different places in their careers. One of the most uh, important of those, uh, and one who I know best, is Taeyun Kim. Uh, I was on his dissertation committee a long time ago. He was one of our best students here. When he graduated from Ohio State, he went to the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign and then to the University of Florida. Uh, went back to Korea and made a career, became director of foreign policy and security studies at the Sejong Institute, which for those of you who don't know is the Brookings Institution of Korea. And from there, left to become a professor uh, at uh, Chang'ang University in their Graduate School of International Studies, where he is currently. Uh, a number of his students in Korea now are important in the national security establishment, uh, speech writers for the, the president and the like. He's written a lot of articles over the years, both on Korean foreign policy and security policy, and more recently on Korean domestic politics as it applies to their understanding of the United States and U.S.-Korean relations. And I think that will be some of what we hear today. So without further ado, uh, Taeyun Kim, our own uh, Ph.D. student uh, from a long time ago. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rick. Uh, in an Asian uh, tradition, your 60th birthday is uh, big. And I re realized that my 60th, 60th, I'm 60th birthday, 60th birthday is only 12 years apart. I can't believe that. I first came to Ohio State in 1984, which is just like yesterday, but it was 20, was it 20 years ago. And I have a learned a lot from those uh, 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 brilliant professor at Ohio State University. I regard Columbus as my second hometown, and I regard Ohio State as my sole alma mater. That's, that's true. Okay, uh, by the way, let me go ahead with my presentation. The presentation, which was posted, is entitled Between Borders and Allies, and subtitled South Korea's Strategic Dilemma in a World of Uncertainties. It was intended as a commissioned book chapter and as a uh, short descriptive analysis of one, external and strategic environment, and second, a domestic constraint. My argument there, which is still I'm preparing, is that uh, external and strategic environment surrounding South Korea has changed so much and still changes so fast that it requires a high-level strategic prudence on the part of South Korean leadership to force both agility and flexibility in these foreign policies. On the other hand, domestic political constraints limit both agility. Okay, and South Korean decision-making process becomes very slow because all those or because all those domestic pressures. At the same time, it pushes its policy content to a certain directions. 
more like nationalistic directions. And that, that article is intended to describe all of them, and I found that it's quite boring for most of it, particularly the first part. I would say that the world has entered to unipolar structure and United States is driven by terrorism, which is hardly unpredictable. That requires South Korea to force the state prudence. This is so boring. So I will focus on the second thing. Okay, <laughs> uh, how can I move to the next page? Okay. Oh. Okay, uh, this is more like the title I really want to work on. Okay, uh, I think democracy and foreign policy making South Korea is like a book worth uh, research title, which is I'm very interested in it. As a student of both Rick and Chuck Holman here, I regard myself as a student of foreign policy analysis. And in, you know, living in Korea as a political scientist is quite different from living in Columbus as a political scientist. And I have involved very intimately with the policy-making and policy outcome very closely. And I really inclined to apply all those theories, concepts, and tools I have learned here to produce a book-length study of South Korea's foreign policy, particularly after democratization back in the 1980s. Okay, and today what I'm going to present will be like a conceptual part, chapter of that book and focus on how democratization creates foreign policy constraints in South Korea. Okay, I have uh, observed in South Korean foreign policy in its content as well as major processes, two things. First is more like about, about these processes. That is, there is an excessive society intervention in policy making processes. The second is, as I mentioned before, there's a nationalistic tone in the content of foreign policy. And as an illustrating case, I was like, at a case study towards the end of my case, I mean, article is that the South Korea's decision to dispatch combat forces to Iraq upon U.S. requests in 2003 and 2004. Okay. The first request was received in this September 1903, that initial decision was made to apply, I mean, to comply with U.S. demands on October. Then in February 1904, National Assembly approved it. Then it took, since then it took almost six months uh, to implement that decision, okay, which was already approved by the National Assembly. And they sent, 3,000 troops, which was sent in secret. Okay, uh, uh, the defense department, defense ministry spokesman threatened almost those uh, uh, journalists or reporters around that if something goes wrong with our troops, then you must be held responsible. So keep it quiet. So we didn't know it until two weeks after it uh, was sent. And the content of this decision is also interesting. The size of 3,000 was half in size originally intended, and to a location where it was, it was not intended originally. Okay, there was some change in the processes. And by the way, uh, by the end of uh, December, uh, last December, National Assembly approved the extension 
of the troop for another year. It was the last minute decision. It required to make decision approval by the end of the year, and it was uh, December 31st. It was a hard decision. Okay, the question, okay, the theoretical question. Okay. Literature in international relations as a foreign policy analysis suggests that governments enjoy relative freedom in their foreign policy, particularly in security policy making. Okay, I would like there's two uh, literature. One is uh, on the Lipman consensus on public opinion and foreign policy. The public opinion do not have interest and knowledge to form solid opinion on foreign affairs. And public opinion hardly affects foreign policy after all. That was one of the elements of Alma Lipman consensus. The second literature I'm listing is the issue area and foreign policy making, thing, like workforce, Zimmerman uh, thing. The public do not have interest or motivation and are poorly organized to intervene in the power protection area of issues, that is, security issue areas. That's the part in part explains why public opinion hardly affects foreign policy. Okay. Then, how to explain South Korean case? That is the kind of um, uh, exception to that generalization. Okay, tentative answer to me is a democratization. And in fact, it, there are some existing studies to explain uh, foreign policy terms, changes in foreign policy of South Korea in terms of democratization. I'll list two. One is by uh, Catherine Moon, who is teaching at the Wellesley University, who is a sociologist and a Korean American, wrote on um, anti Americanism. Uh, she ex explained in terms of, of course, democratization. But the logic she applies employs is like this. Institutional changes associated with democratization unleashed some social forces, particularly the civil organizations, NGOs, to intervene in the policy-making processes. Then um, pushes the policy toward anti-American uh, trends. Uh, that makes sense, but it wasn't quite convincing to me because unrelation those social forces do not explain why those social organizations become anti-American and why they are motivated to intervene in foreign affairs and so The second thing, there's nine. I, if you take one year away, right here at Russia, and I was writing an uh, article that explains uh, in part the anti-Americanism in, in, in 2002, December 2002, you remember the candlelight demonstration against the U.S.? There I, and it was published early this year in Korean, unfortunately. But uh, I focused on political psychology of democratization as a kind of driving force that pushed the people to act in certain directions. And I focus on that from now on. Okay, theoretical context. I would cite uh, uh, Jack Schneider, that one degree, and that's Peter Schneider article as well. Democratization is a danger war. From, uh, according to Schneider, as you all may know, that democratization threatens the vested interests of the ruling elites. And then, threatened elites exploit a newly available medium, which is the voting, to manipulate and mobilize the mass public nationalistic sentiment into foreign conflict. I think that is a key argument, but I found that there is a missing link in Schneider's arguments. 
uh, that is a nationalistic sentiment in the mass public is a necessary condition for his argument to hold. But where does it come from? Uh, he does not explain. Maybe omnipresent. Everywhere you, you may find nationalist sentiments. So all you need is just the incentive to manipulate, mobilize it, and medium into the voting to do so. But I think that is a, a dubious assumption. You cannot assume that nationalistic sentiment is everywhere to, to a certain same degree. The second assumption may be that democratization may be somehow associated with nationalism. But how? And I don't believe that uh, Schneider ever explains it. So it has to be explained. So I try to explain democratization in terms of social psychological concepts of national identity. I, uh, last year I was working on Hart on, uh, I forgot his first name, this is the last name, Bloom, National Identity, published by uh, Cambridge University Press in 1990. Alan Bloom, yeah. He uh, introduced a social psychology on identification, and he argues that human beings have a certain innate desire for identification. The desire for identification uh, provides a motivation to act. And people are motivated to act in order to protect or enhance their identity. And identity consists of corporate identity and social identity, which I followed from uh, Professor Wendt's article on 1994 APSL article. Okay, so from that point on, I would think of identity structure in terms of a kind of concentric circles. At the core, you have a corporate identity around which you have a variety of social identities, your families, your region, your <coughs> school, and one of them is, of course, a national identity. And the national identity is a social identity formed around the political community. It could be either state or nation to which an individual belongs. And the national identity and the social identity has three characteristics. The first is, like all identity structures, it has a narcissistic or megalomaniac tendencies. You equal yourself better than you really are. The second is, uh, there is a sense of intimate affiliation with others sharing the same social identities. The third is a corollary of one and two, that is, the tendency to differentiate others and possibly discriminate against others. And national identity is also a collective identity, shared by a group of individuals who belong to the same uh, group. Okay. Uh, national, you know, Bloom, national identity is formed when a group of individuals collectively internalize symbols of a nation or state, like a flags, history, language, history, heroes, and so on. And those internalization occurs when individuals collectively experience the presence and actions of the state. And what is important is that democratization and participation in politics enhance sense of a national identity. And that's the point where I found the national democratization can lead to changes people's attitude. Okay, and I think national identity as a social identity has something special. And I uh, relied on some literature on the concept by the historians and political scientists on the concept of nation 
and the nationalism, particularly I uh, it calls uh, nationalism and after, where he shows the close connection between nationalism and democracy. He introduces three stages of nationalism. At the initial stage, a uh, nation achieves some, some kind of personality. At the same time, it was identified with the ruling elites, kings and heroes and so on. And also historians acknowledge that nation in, in modern history was kind of a collectivity that represents the ruling elite of the state as a political institution. And it, sometimes it included the king, but sometimes it did not, like uh, Louis XIV, who were too strong to be part of the nation. And the second stage is what we call usually the age of nationalism, that is, uh, together with the uh, French Revolution, nation became democratized, the bourgeoisie class became part of a nation. And instead of calling themselves the people, they call themselves as a nation. And the third stage started in the late 19th century with I mean, so what Carl called the socialization of nations, that is, the kind of universal phrase was important. And he, the next stage between the First World War and Second World War called climate of nationalism, I could be regarded interpreted as a kind of a national identity dynamic, which Bloom called it. I mean, Bloom uh, describes national identity dynamic as a kind of potential for mass collective action in order to protect or enhance one's national identity. And given that uh, nature of national identity, I found two dimensions of a national identity. One is, is inter internal dimension. That is, a, being a, a, is a sense of being a master or ruler of the state as a political institution. And the second is an external dimension. That is what we call, normally call nationalism or nationalistic sense, <coughs> national pride, national prestige, ethnic discrimination, or xenophobia altogether form a part of national identity, external dimensions. And effects of a nation democratization, let me return to the democratization with that. Uh, I mean, with the democratization, it, it produced two changes. One is in the institutional dimensions, as everybody knows it. The new elections are held, freedom of press are guaranteed, and, and the formation of social, economic, or political organization become very easy easy and so And the second dimension is, I think, the ideational dimension, which open people often disregard. This, as I mentioned, psychology of national identity is very important. And also other principles of democracy becomes important, too, in, in real politics. Okay, uh, then I'll go on. Uh, identity politics in South Korea. Democratization built, brought in, or enhanced Certain national sense of national identity that produces certain political changes leading to dual constraints on foreign policy. So I summarize a series of propositions. The first is democratization enhanced national identity that is further strengthened by repeated participation in politics and elections. Let me give you one more number. In 18 years, starting 1987 until 2004, there were 15 nationwide elections in Korea. Okay, that is almost nearly once a year. That experience, I think, meant a lot. Second, 
enhanced national identity brought about two attitudinal changes in people. The first is high level of political efficacy because the, the country or the state is yours and nationalistic sentiments on the other hand. The third is political efficacy led to punitive voting. That is one of the political phenomena I would like to focus on, uh, punishing voters, punitive voting, but in the part of voters. And the fourth, political efficacy together with deep distrust in politics and politicians' uh, legacies from the dictatorship period resulted in empowerment of civil organizations. That's another uh, political phenomenon I would like to focus on. And then, purity of voting together with the idea of a democracy, I mean, public opinion must be uh, respected and so on, led to the cult of the public opinion. That's another phenomenon I would focus on. And then, the freedom of press, which is an institutional change, together with the cult of the public opinion, raised the importance of mass media. In the early 1990s, mass media wielded very strong influences all over the country, which in turn resulted in over-competition in that part, that industry. Then competition in media industry resulted in sensationalism and competitive appeal to nationalist sentiment. That is one uh, phenomenon which is our, our concern. Then many of the above mentioned developments were instrumental to populism in politics, which has self-reinforcing mechanisms. Then number four and five led to indecisive policy making, and number seven and eight led to nationalistic foreign policy discontent. Uh, let me just summarize some of those phenomena I just focused on. The first is punitive voting. As I mentioned, there were 15 national scale elections in 18 years. And there were far more than that for replacement elections. Wherever there is a replacement, I mean, vacancies in National Assembly, you have to hold the replacement elections. That made uh, Korea a land of elections of voting. There is always voting or always elections. And second, punitive voting took two forms. The first, at the party level, ruling parties normally punished more severely than oppositions. Especially during the midterm, I quote the midterm election because there is no midterm election in Korea, but all those impressive elections, and as a point of reference, uh, presidential term is five years, and National Assembly has a four year term. So it, all, it, it goes uh, differently. So this election is all that way. So it has often happened that the ruling party was a minority in the National Assembly. That was not the case until democratization held. It happened twice, 1988 and 2000, but in other cases as well, it's a very narrow. <coughs> and at the individual level, incumbent members of the National Assembly are often handicapped. They are not advantaged, handicapped. As an example, in the last April, there was a general election, 188 out of 299 were newcomers to the National Assembly. The empowerment of civil organizations, reflecting with deep, uh, reflecting deep-rooted distrust in politics and politicians, NGOs have mushroomed 
and enjoyed higher legitimacy than established political institutions. And taking advantage of information revolution, those NGOs have become very effective opinion makers. They are very effective. And starting in 2000, government has subsidized those NGOs. They paid money to those NGOs. And, and particularly the role of the government who inaugurated in um, February 2003 called itself what's a participatory government and accommodate those NGOs in official public policy making processes. I am part of uh, advisory council to, uh, for the national security and foreign policy making by the government, and there are some members from those NGOs. Can you give examples of what kind of NGOs they are? I mean, there are lots. What is uh, your, a people's network for international peace, something like that? There are some established, famous establishments <coughs> like People's Coalition for Economic Justice and so on, but there are a lot of them. And there are small groups, wherever there is an issue, they form big coalitions. For, for example, there is a big coalition against sending troops to Iran, and that will be very effective. And another phenomenon I focus on the cult of the public opinion, the, the idea of democracy which is deep rooted in Korea. Ever since we became independent in 1945, uh, we learned that democracy is a blessing and we have followed those principles. One principle, of course, is we have to respect the public opinion. And those punishing voters led to the cult of the public opinion. Uh, I can give you some examples, some statistics to show that how, how much, the, how many polling industry has uh, uh, Established system, okay, we have a lot of them. In 1992, there was only a couple big polling companies. Now we, we can count more than a dozen. And mass media are running their own polling system. And myself wrote three articles in major newspaper, not columns, but analyzing survey, and, uh, survey results. And internet polling are also popular. And during the past year, I was asked to respond to uh, polling, expert polling, more than a dozen times last year alone. That is really. Whenever they have, they got the result, they publish it, say, this is expert opinion on this particular issue and that particular issue and so on. That always uh, has a strong weight of heavy to person makers. And sensationalism in mass media. Freedom of press allowed more presses, and the cult of public opinion raised the importance of media as opinion makers. And media market overcrowded led to a civil competition, and competition led media to appeal sensationalism, including and particularly nationalism. And populism in politics. I haven't studied much about populism yet, uh, but uh, politicians have increasingly utilized the, the tactics of populism to appeal to punishing voters, at the same time, emotional voters appears to moral emotional justification rather than rational calculation of cost benefits using vague metaphors. That's a typical phenomenon which I call uh, populism tactics. And as politicians who are good at populism tactics succeed and survive. The best example is of course President Nomuyan. Populism has a kind of built-in self-reinforcing mechanism. Those who are good at populism tactics survive. Others uh, 
steps out and they increase appeal to uh, tactics and so on. And foreign policy is an area that fits populism tactics the best. Uh, I think using all these kinds of those phenomena, putting them together, I could analyze, I could have a good case study of this. I haven't done much on this. Even though I asked my students for the first analysis class to present it, write a report on that particular case twice already, but I haven't done it myself. So let me start here. <laughs> um, invite any questions if you have comments. I really would like to have comments because I have former professors, former scholars in the field and so on. Yeah. You talked about the uh, effect of democratization uh, to outer Americans. And I have read some uh, articles by Japanese scholars about uh, South Korea's democratization <coughs> leading to more friction between Japan and South Korea. And I was wondering if the South Korean democratization is making the South Korean foreign policy in general more aggressive or I think that in general, in general, but because United States is the most salient in Korea, I mean, wherever, wherever you go, you meet American I mean, presence, not physical, but whatever. <laughs> that makes uh, America, United States as a natural target of kind of anti-privileged foreigners. It is not necessarily, but as I mentioned, Enhanced national identity has always the potential to be antagonistic to foreigners, if not necessary. For example, uh, 2002 World Cup, of course, South Koreans were very nationalistic, but at the time they were not exclusive to foreigners. Instead, they were very friendly foreigners, even though they lost to Turkey, they called it friendly match. And even though we showed cohorts, what basically Japan, it made Korea Japan even more closer. So I think when national identity is at high level, then you become very lenient foreigners. When you are invasive, you kind of aggressive towards foreigners. Yes. How much is Korean anti-Americanism a function of American policy versus internal dynamics of democratization? That that is a very tough question because of I mean first well, first year of Norwegian presidency, I would say that public sentiments of anti-Americanism are loomed very large present itself. And um, uh, that is part of the reason why the government was basically decisive uh, following American mission on that. But after that, I think that the president learned some lessons how to deal with the public opinion. So he became more flexible than before. I would expect that in coming years, I think strategic expediency will drive us rather than political opinion and because you know Jim Rosner told us that for a small country, I mean, South Korea is small in relative dollars, 
There seems to be a suggestion that democracy causes nationalism. Yeah. We've certainly seen an awful lot of countries that are fanatically nationalistic without the benefit of democracy. Uh, why, um, I mean, you know, Japan was fairly a nationalistic, say, in 1941, right? <laughs> 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 okay, uh, because of democracy. <laughs> I think democratization is one of the causes to have nationalization, but not, I mean, everything. There are some other causes leading to nationalism as well. I, also, I mean, when I said this, uh, I, when I uh, said nationalism and nation, in this context, I already thought to what uh, is called civic nation. I mean, a, a nation that is formed through political processes rather than even ethnic nation, defined external by, by them, arbitrary by a, a pre-given affiliation. So, uh, I don't know whether Kosovo nationalism is driven by nation, I mean, democratization in Kosovo area. I don't think so, but I think uh, democratization is, of course, one of the causes of nationalism, but not everything. Well, it's a way of expressing things. So if a country is nationalistic anyway, it can be expressed through democracy in a different way than if it's not democracy. But it's not clear to me that because people are allowed to vote and speak freely, therefore they have to hate foreigners, for example. Uh, maybe the reverse. Yeah, I mean, the, the term, the concept of nation and nationalism has become so tainted, so become so broad, so wild during the uh, last hundred years or more. Uh, uh, yeah, I was very careful in using the word nationalism. That's why I initially uh, started with the concept of national identity rather than nationalism. What's the difference between I would say that. Uh, in terms of its core, national identity is more narrow than nationalism. I don't know how to define nationalism per se, but I, I read a definition of nationalism like nationalism is, is an ideology over nationalists. And who is a nationalist? Nationalist is the one who are willing to die for the sake of a nation. I don't believe uh, national identity per se can be such a driving force. When it's high enough uh, that you are willing to die for uh, uh, for the sake of your nation, you may be a nationalist, and you may appeal to others such a national sentiment. To I mean, I would say nationalism could be an ideology uh, to mobilize people for certain populations, but national identity per se is can be like a psychological trend which you may have inside your mind. My, my, my understanding, according to your explanation just before, national yeah. um, religion is a, a manifestation of national identity. Yeah. So national identity can, can, can be demonstrated in, in several ways. Yeah, I think that's true. One of them is national. Uh, yeah. that, that, that's, that's your yeah. explanation. Yeah. I said it, it has internal dimension, external dimensions, internal dimension, left to political efficacy. Uh, 
appeal when the decision actually was pending. So in other words, someone in this one, whenever sending troops is involved, it strikes me that there is a lot more input from the public and a lot more interest in the foreign policy decision-making than otherwise true. So I'm wondering, you know, is there really a concept there, or were they talking about, you know, that... Yeah, I think that is a good point. I would have compared whether South Korea took long with Japan, long with Spain and others, to justify that South Korea is an exception deep to justify. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I haven't thought about it. That's my feeling that if I were the president, I would make a decision right away, and it took more than a year, so I don't know. I'm curious why this national identity would take this anti-American term. I'm wondering if we hear more about that. And I'm also curious about the external threat. I mean, it seems to me that in the United States there's a perception that North Korea is potentially aggressive and would, if given the opportunity, establish a very different kind of life in South Korea. And that seemed to be a compelling story to Koreans 50 years ago or 40 years ago. They needed the United States as an ally that would protect them from a North Korean attack. And one of the puzzles I have is that when I've been in Korea, I don't hear any change on that view. The military elite in Korea still seem to think they face some great threat. They still seem to be unhappy that American troops might leave, not stay. They seem to feel that there's a great need for this American defense umbrella. And yet then there's this anti-Americanism, you know, candlelight vigils against America, America. But it's not really America go home. So they don't want to kick America out. So I come back to Alex's question. How do you reconcile this desire to have America stay and at the same time this so-called anti-Americanism? I think there's a tough question. I think you can explain it in two ways. On one hand, I think anti-Americanism is kind of bad. If you classify this attitude in the three dimensions, emotional dimensions, cultural dimensions, or behavioral dimensions, that's one of the emotional dimensions without calculating all the cost benefits. They just go with the idea of the allies as governments. On the other hand, we were really puzzled by South Korea as well. The South Korean public has very, very hard time to understand how Americans are afraid of terrorism. I mean, they say, that's only 3,000 kills. What's wrong with it? What's deep with that? That kind of animosity could be, I mean, because of that, already more than 1,000 is dead. What was wrong with it? What's the big deal with 3,000 kills in New York City? That's maybe flat that South Koreans have lived under the cause of threat. We don't believe the threat is... I was in Seoul in 1994, and everybody believed the war was, of course. 
and a lot of cars were really worried about the tank. But so there was not much panic. I, mean, I saw some people who went through fight with more than food and fuels, but not panic at all. We have lived such a kind of precarious position of the more than 50 years. I think that is one of the, and that makes us kind of uh, insensitive to American anxiety over uh, terrorism. That is what possible source of difference between the US and the Russian government over the ethnic collaboration to fight war against terrorism. Alternative hypothesis yeah. yours then, that over this last uh, 25 years, the threat from North Korea, as perceived by South Koreans, has become so routinized yeah. and so commonplace that it's not really a threat anymore in any active, urgent way. Mm -hmm. And without that threat, then the need to have this American and put up with the McDonald's and American troops in Itaban and all that goes down, because if you don't have this great threat in any urgent way, what do you need this pain in the neck uh, sitting in downtown Seoul and all the rest and all these other Americans? And so your tolerance level goes, when they do make that cost-benefit calculation, yeah. not just emotion. It's like you don't need the American that much, and therefore the toleration for it, and for going off to Iraq to fight in some war that has nothing to do uh, with Korea, goes down. Okay. And they have nothing to do with democratization. <coughs> it has to do with actually a change geostrategic threat. Would you agree or disagree? Or is this threat in part Korea still seem as very Yeah, in part agree with you in the sense that many people worry that when the United States announced that it's the intention to relocate on the forces from DMZ to South Bahan River, there would be a panic and kind of a subsides with the climate. And it didn't happen. I mean, people quickly adjusted to that. Yes? Actually, this is my follow-up on Rick's question. Um, I'm wondering if, um, as opposed to just democratization, whether there's not another aspect of the psychology of uh, anti-Americanism in Korea, which is um, sort of a, a reaction to a culture of dependency, strategic dependency, economic dependency, and so on, um, the fancy where you know deep down that you need the Americans mm -hmm. to keep away from North Koreans and, and maintain security. On the other hand, um, when it's ambivalent about that, as one becomes more assertive as a people, um, there's resentment toward that. And so maybe kind of a, in the process that Rick was describing, at the end, something more like a conscious uh, weighing of the threat from North Korea, this might operate at a more subconscious level.
have a problem on it. What they are going to do is a good question and no answer, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it may vary from time to time, but I think that it's a very good question to ask people. This sort of problem comes into your mind right. problem, so something like that. Oh, I think it, I mean, broker is similar because we feel, I mean, two countries almost all the time. On one day, you probably, probably you see it about the United States, on the other day, it's on North Korea. So. Mm. I think the closest uh, uh, parallel we would have to the current Korean situation would be the German situation in the 1980s. Uh, divided country, the empire of the evil on the other side, a spread that is diminishing. Uh, if I look at Germany, in the 80s, uh, I don't think there was any resentment against American military presence. In fact, it was ignored. It didn't play a role. It was a friendly relationship. That, uh, nobody wanted America to go home in that sense, but nobody cared about America being there. There was also no, I think, subconscious resentment to being dominated or controlled. Uh, if there was anti-Americanism in the 80s, it was because I think there was a very different concept of conflict resolution in Germany and Europe than in the United States. While Reagan was trying to get rid of the Soviet Union through military build-up, um, deploying missiles in West Germany, the Germans had for 10 years already tried to solve the situation through what they called Ostpolitik, through negotiation, through trade, through exchange, through peaceful ways. America coming in with a rather military solution to that conflict became a negative factor, and Americanism rallied around that fact over itself. Is this something like this in Korea, too, that the South Koreans have a better way to deal with the confrontation with North Korea than the U.S. has to offer, and for that reason, maybe there's anti-American? I think there's a lot of I mean, precise parallels between Germany and Korea, too. I mean, in 1984, United States was really true. For military attack on North Korea, and South Korea was, of course, and South Korea was against it. Because it would be the South Korea who suffered the most from any kind of And that kept again and again, this pediatrical problem for Korea. Uh, and that problem becomes uh, in the late 1980s, the United States was opposing, making a rough portion of it, uh, North Korea. Much is faster than South Korea wanted. And after that, the situation was reversed. South Korea wanted in, to invest North Korea while that state is not. So that's always different in that. I think that's, that's hard to reconcile because of the national interests of the country are different. Then you may add one other dimension uh, of American success, that is domestic issues. Uh, have you ever, I, I don't know whether you have heard about what is called. 38th generation in Korea. 38th generation in, in the age of 30s, who attended college in the 1980s, and who were born in the 1960s. So this was what talked about five years ago, so many of them are now in their 40s. But both guys are half the They attended college when. Uh, People began to blame the United States for the massacre of the people in the country in the 1980s. They believed that uh, the United States was in a position to prevent that massacre 
at the same time, I said, well, let's make some true present the wise of Mr. Johnson to Muhammad, but not say at least opinionistic. And that made a very large impact on our historical development. And that uh, was one of the most prominent causes of the demonstration in the 80s. They are the living actors, and many of them are now in national temples and so And that, that became very salient. And that is one of the sources, resentment from the history still lingering in South Korean society, together with parts different <coughs> Um, I'm wondering about your use of uh, the concept of collective internalization. Um, it could be a very thin concept or it could be a very thick one. On the thin side, it could mean, um, well, just taking the word collective, it could mean 100% of the population, it could mean 50.1%. It's a complicated society with a, some certain kind of power structure. It could be 20% of the population, and with respect to internalization, what you're sharing, if it's a thin concept, it means, well, we all know what our flag is, uh, we all know that we're located in Asia, but if you get into more complicated issues, then uh, you have to have a pretty thick concept of it to, to think that we all share a certain thing. And, and a possible response to, to Rick's question why you get people holding his candlelight vigils, and yet officers wanting Americans to say that Koreans aren't all the same. There's, there's, there's diversity. Um, as you just mentioned, there's generational differences, there's regional differences within Korea. So part of uh, why I'm interested in this is um, how thick your concept of <coughs> collective internalization is may have impact on how you, how you can argue about the role of democratization because if it's a thick concept, then democratization shouldn't matter very much because everybody's thinking the same thing. You're all moving together. But if there are significant differences, then democratization surely can be more relevant because then those differences are playing off against each other and there's more internal competition. So if, if you could elaborate a bit more on how you're using the collective internalization. Well, as a student from Ohio State, I used to hate such a word as a discourse. I mentioned about mediation and democratization. democratization. Let's say even if 100% of the population vote, do not vote, I mean, only that the vote turn out to be 70%, she is still high. On one point, time it was 85%, even 85%. But still, there are younger generations who do not vote. But uh, I want to say that when democratization was an issue, all the issues of Korea, everybody was talking about it. Even if they did not talk about the benefits or the cause of democratization, they are just talking about democratization as something good, something as a blessing. But I think that kind of process is democratization was a dominant discourse throughout the 1980s, late 1980s. I think that had a big impact on the formation of national identity and administrative what, what, what do we mean by democratization? Democratization in Korean languages, or in Asian languages, translated that people are the masters. People are the masters of the state. So we are talking about all the time. So that led to what I mentioned, the political action, which is part of, I mean, the national identity, the city mission. Those are fairly vague concepts. I mean, that's 
that can be, you know, everybody can be talking about democracy and efficacy without very different ideas of what's good efficacy or what is good functioning democracy. <coughs> oh, we hardly mention democracy, but we talk about the bad, bad democracy before. I mean, everybody talks about democracy or democratization and democracy. That's what I thought. I mean, I, I discourse, everybody, think about it without question. Right. Are they wiser now? I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm not going to ask the question because people will tell me now that I have all the answers. <laughs> 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 I spent a great deal of time in Korea in the last 15 years to say what I know about it. It's now accumulated about 470 days or a couple of observations. Well, democratization has to mean something. It's not altogether clear yet in terms of the Constitution of Korea that it does. People elect people to the National Assembly. The National Assembly's powers are still very constrained by the Korean Constitution. It's been rewritten now six times in 1948. But the executive branch of the government, the President of Korea, has powers that an American president can just rule with. Then been that way here since World War II. The president can suspend the law, put national emergencies, and do all kinds of things. But, uh, obviously, who concern people? I think the debate that follows over the revision of the national security law, and that's where the, <coughs> the pressure will come within Korea to, to make some. The national security law was passed in 1947 under enormous pressure. Korea was involved in the Civil War, which changed in 1950. The war didn't begin in 1950, it began in 1947, 1948. It just changed. The national security law was actually an amalgam of the American National Security Act of 1947, which sets up the structure. <coughs> folded in was known as the Peace Preservation Act, which is in fact largely the rules followed by the Japanese colonial government to suppress internal dissent. Well, was a colony. And so that's what's there now. It's, it would be like the old Alien Sedition Acts in the United States, or in fact the laws that still apply in Great Britain regarding the secrets and criticism of the government. The onerous, not enforced, thank heavens, today the way it was in the Park Chungi and the one. But nevertheless, the law is still there. And it's a you know, tremendous instrument of power of the national government to suppress any kind of political dissent of any kind. And that's something that's quite a problem concerned about these Other things, the national government controls money. There's no federalism in Korea. Uh, only within the last decade of Korean governors elected. They still don't have any budgetary power to speak of. Uh, most of the officials that count are appointed. Uh, they may or may not be represented in political parties. Uh, it really depends on what the president and his various coalitions uh, put together. Uh, there's no information available to the general public in Korea about defense matters until less than 10 years ago. You couldn't find in Korea, Korean language, or in English, what the defense budget was, or how the money was being spent, or, or anything. Uh, you know, Halfway some of our graduates now do the Korean name of the Korean defense white paper. Now, with the 
wasn't available to Koreans any sooner than it was in the United States. And so there's a, you know, the, the problem I think is having a democracy and having elections to mean something. And where, where people feel as if they have, you know, at least some, the voting has some relationship to making specific decisions that, that really count, whether it's clean water, bridges that don't fall down, zoning decisions, urban sprawl up and down the Han River Valley still out of control. It has to be coping somehow, someday. Uh, there are all kinds of pressing domestic national issues uh, which remain unaddressed. The transparency of financial dealings by banks and by corporations. You make a long list. And it would look pretty much the way the United States did in the 1890s. Without Korea passing out of the Gilded Age into something else. Another fact is Korea's wealth is, is uh, export dependent. That doesn't change much and it's probably not likely to. So if your economy is export dependent, uh, it's fairly easy to be extremely sensitive. Uh, the changes in the financial markets and trade patterns and all the rest. But thank heaven, places like Hyundai Corporation or Hallow Group is reasonably well run so that people uh, have got a bigger share of the public field market in the United States. But also the third world. But there's some very, very peculiar situations about the Korean developmental picture of the 20th century that sometimes don't get caught in the theory that had a couple of other things. Korea's frame of reference with, with the United States is not dominated by their attitudes towards the American government. It's dominated by Christian churches, by American corporations, by, by educational institutions, by all sets of non-governmental relationships and associations which are largely positive. So the Koreans know that there's an option. <laughs> there may be two Americans, you know, the one that they have to deal with in terms of our government, our military establishment, and then a very much larger America with many, many Koreans are quite familiar with. Uh, you can't go into a bank, let's say, you know, say University of Rockwell, and you know, banks do business in two currencies, dollars and won. Because you can't take one out of the country but need to have those exchange values. In fact, the uh, Koreans are very, very aware of what currency values are. They're not only dealing with dollars, but they're dealing in Deutschmarks or in pounds or in some other some other foreign currency. I dare say there's probably very few people in this room who maintain bank accounts in two or three different currencies. I haven't maintained bank accounts so long, so I watch what's our college today. But, but I think that makes it easier, in some ways, for Koreans to be positive about the United States or about Americans as groups or individuals, and easier to be more critical of the United States or the, or the policy influence upon Korean life, which is a Korean security issue. Security issue is real easy to understand. It's this. A, the United States doesn't make decisions about Korea. It makes decisions about Korea depending on its relations with Japan and China. And so what happens to Korea always comes as kind of afterthought, depending upon what we think you know, our, our stakes are in Japan and China. I don't think any of us would blame them to be a little concerned to find themselves in that position. 
others in America, this calculation screwed them up, but not us. You know, it's the Seoul region that goes down in a great big mushroom cloud or something less if the Americans miscalculate. It's not Los Angeles, not San Francisco. This is different from Germany. I think it was a sense that if we screwed up there, we get it too. Uh, but, but I think there's still a, you know, a sense that we, the United States, don't pay too large a price if we miscalculate. So we go up to Pyongyang and beat them around the head and shoulders with the nasty nukies and stuff like that, feeling fairly confident that we don't have enough price to pay The Koreans get nervous. You can hardly blame them. You know, they think they're nervous enough. <coughs> well, nervous. Nervous. Yeah, I'd be more nervous. But I'd like to go to the September. Sort of, if the Koreans aren't nervous, we shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I win this test. <laughs> <laughs> I was there, uh, if the Koreans were nervous, I was nervous. Uh, but, but the point is that the, they have some real, you know, real reasons to be extremely. Uh, Worried when American presidents suddenly offhandedly write in North Korea as part of a, a triad of rogue states, you know, axis of evil. Uh, that's the kind of thing that made me kind of nervous too if I was in Seoul, because the fear is, instead of being an offhand statement, not even declaratory policy, that somebody right here might take this really seriously. Then they take a look at Iraq and say, well, they're capable of that. You know, oh, man. Uh, when do we get our arms? So, but, uh, I think still that we're not nearly as sensitive to their reasons to be worried about us. Tayun, do you want to have a last word? Or I'm going to. Oh, one last question. Thank you. I'm going to pull this to close. Um, since the U.S. approach seems to be similar to the use or re energize. To apply pressure to China, then to apply pressure to North Korea. How is the, the Korean public opinion? How does the Korean public opinion reflect that? that? What does Korean public opinion think about? Okay. A re-energized Japan. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, we armaments of Japan is has always been a very, very big, huge issue in South Korea. But in recent years, even though Japan has gone through that kind of level, it doesn't make that much noise. I don't know whether because the United States was pushing Japan for destination, or Japan was using the expected tactics for surely that met, but uh, I didn't see that that much. It has uh, one big resentment was against I mean, China last year. China was trying, I mean, South Korean girls, China was trying to dispose history, claiming that big modern part of Korean nation thousand years ago. This is written in reality as part of Japan, China and Korea. Just before that, so then the public can alter questions of members, whether they agree, not that it's boycott in China or the other way around. What if people say, let's say it's not North, China is boycott. And that event happened 
that's probably your first change that we have. Anyway, if you have big issue and try out on the one frame view or try out the best change. So, I mean, popular opinion of views of this nation is changing that rapidly. How can we study something as table as a driving force of politics? I don't know yet, but I think that's what happened. Japan itself is a big issue, but not a big issue. I want to thank Kayo. Yeah, thank you very much. I was neglected to introduce Ebru Khanin, which is her second time with us. Ebru arrived Monday. She's from the University of Vienna in Italy. Uh, she will be here until the 18th, and she's going to Berlin, but she'll be back after that for the rest of the quarter anyway. She studied European politics uh, and lots of interesting social psychological stuff. She can tell you more, but she's with uh, some of you met Pierangelo Cernia here last year. Uh, Adrian is working with Pierangelo. So, um, you all know her. I hope you'll all introduce yourselves to her while she's here over this quarter. Thank you. Thank you again, Kayun, who will be here a few more days if you have some questions, but I think he leaves this weekend for Seoul. Yes, I leave this weekend.